Analytics with Mike Lewis, the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics. Here's your host, Mike Lewis, marketing professor at Emory University. Welcome, everyone, to the Fanalytics Podcast. Mike Lewis. Today, I have Ada Chong back with me. Hey, I'm excited to be back. Thanks for having me, Mike. Ada, today we're going to do something a little bit different. We're actually going to talk a little bit about, well, maybe it's not all that different, but it's a different kind of sport. So the sport being politics for a change. Ooh, politics. Touchy. (laughs) Exactly. But this is also sort of some hardcore analytics in the background. Recently published a paper with um, a couple of co-authors, David Schweidel at Emory University Yan Wen uh, Wong at University of British Columbia. Yan Wen absolutely did a lot of the hard lifting in terms of the analysis on this. The paper is called A Border Strategy Analysis of Ad Source and Message Tone in Senatorial Campaigns. Boy, that's going to get people going, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, we've seen a lot of campaigns in this past election, for sure. Well, and and I guess I should say, you know, that the paper will be coming out in, in really just a few days in the, well, the journal is called Marketing Science. All right. Well, why are you doing a politics episode on a sports podcast, Mike? Okay. And so that's, I think that's a great question. It's a great way to, to start this out. And the name of the podcast is Fanalytics. And so the, the focus is on, well, the analytics or analyzing fan behavior. Now, I think most of the time that's going to occur in the realm of sports. Um, but I think it, it's actually, you know, one, one of the things when I think about being a sports guy is I think a lot about the lessons that we can apply beyond the world of sports. So when I think of sports fans, I think of really extreme consumer loyalty. And I think politics bears some similarities to that, right? I mean, so is there extreme loyalty in the realm of politics? Absolutely. I mean, I I think we all know folks that will only vote for one party, right? I mean, like we're, we're on a college campus. There are a lot of folks in this building that could never even dream about pulling a lever for a Republican. Right. 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 And so it, it, that extreme loyalty, I think, bears a lot of similarity with the world of sports. I mean, it, it's actually kind of an op- interesting open question to me is, are people more, is a Pittsburgh Steelers fan more loyal to the Steelers than, let's say, a hardcore Democratic voter is to the Democratic Party? It, it, it's an open question. I, I, I don't know. The other thing is that, Political contests are competitive endeavors. So, you know, it kind of bears that similarity with sports as well, is that there is a level of competition. Now, again, there's always going to be some differences in terms of, you know, the game. Though the game plays out over, you know, 60 minutes of clock time. Politics plays out over the course of, well, really months and months and actually can be even years and years. We're talking about political advertising. How is politics similar to marketing? Okay, and so, you know, just uh, making the case that I think politics are similar to sports and the competitive aspect, and I'm not the first one that's made this case, modern politics looks a lot like marketing. I mean, you think about a political campaign, how different is it from a standard marketing campaign? You know, you're spending advertising dollars to make people aware of you as a political figure, very similar to making people aware of your brand. The messages that you include in that advertising are designed to position your candidacy in a certain way. Let's go back to like a John McCain. You know, John McCain really wanted to position himself as a maverick, right? 
I mean, that that's positioning. You know, th- this is sort of marketing 101. I'm the guy, the maverick that wants to take on tough challenges in 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 in, in, in sort of non-traditional ways. Um, in 2008, well, who was who was McCain going up against? Obama. Obama. And how did Obama? I mean, I'll I'll ask you a question. How did Obama position himself? Change. Okay. <laughs> hope and hope and change, right? That was Obama was. How old were you when uh, Obama ran, Ada? I was 18. And, and, and so I, I, it's, it's an interesting question to me. As an 18-year-old, did you think of what Obama was doing as a marketing campaign? No, to be honest, I did not. So you just thought kind of very pure of spirit, hope and change, this is, this is who this guy is, I guess? I'd say, I mean, it was a good slogan strategy, but I think as an 18-year-old, I wasn't very into politics at the time so i didn't put too much thought i was voting for whatever party i aligned with okay so you didn't even think about it as let's say a piece of marketing and i guess that's that's in some ways i think for a candidate that's the best right if you're not thinking too much about you're just absorbing the message now given you know after spending a few years in the industry and the communications field you know it's almost like i think we know that hope and change was tested in focus groups right yes Right. You know, and, and, and so political advertising, it, it's just marketing in a lot of ways. I mean, you may argue that, well, it's, it's actually something really important, so we don't want to... I think it's actually disturbing to a lot of people to say that these political campaigns are just marketing campaigns, that they should be something more high-minded, something more pure. But that's what sticks with people. You know, with Hillary Clinton's campaign, I'm with her. I'm with her. That's whatever, you know, you see bumper stickers and it's all over media. That's what sticks with people. And I'm in a little bit off topic for what we're discussing today, but you know, where, where does the, you know, there's gotta be a line in some of this, right? So it's, um, if you think about like how our, how Donald Trump operates, right? He does some stuff on Twitter that people will get upset with him about I mean, even people in his own party. So I'm saying they will object to the messaging but every time he does something like that, he is positioning the Donald Trump brand, right? Yeah, absolutely. He he's a guy that gets things done, and I mean, I, I think what his, I mean, and it's different, right? So from one side, they're viewing him as a crazy person who shouldn't have access to the Twitter. From his side, it probably looks like, well, you know what? I'm a non-traditional politician that's just interested in getting things done. So a lot of a lot of marketing principles are really kind of what's behind behind the scenes in terms of politics and campaigns. So let me ask you, do you think political advertising works? Okay, and that's, you know, going back to the, the paper that we're talking about, that's sort of the key empirical question. It's a, it's, it's a funny one, right? We see so much advertising. When we're in a political cycle, you can't avoid it, right? you turn the TV on, if you if you still watch TV, you turn the TV on, and you're going to see endless political ads. You go on YouTube, you're going to see endless political ads. And so, you know, almost as a starting point, we might think, well, of course political advertising works, right? If it didn't work, why do they do it so much? Well, does it work for people who need persuading, or does it work for people who are already firm on a party? So let's say a Democrat, if they're a hardcore Democrat, they're probably going to vote that way. They're not going to change their mind and vote someone Republican, but someone who's moderate, who could lean either way, are they the ones who are okay. better targeted? Strangely, it's an open empirical question if political advertising actually works. 
And I think you're going down the right path in that when we think about whether or not it works, we almost have to start to decompose the electorate. You know, so what you were mentioning is this idea of persuasion. So, you know, a lot of people are really kind of, you know, I'm a Steelers fan or I'm a Giants fan. You can't persuade me. But, you know, maybe I'm not a fan of anything. You can kind of get me to choose one of those teams. You know, I don't have a team playing in the Super Bowl. Maybe you can persuade me to vote for it. So, I mean, this idea of persuading moderates. The other side of it is actually getting people to turn out, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, a funny thing about all this, too, and one of the things I think is interesting about studying politics is that I don't even know if it's often sort of about my love for one party. Sometimes I think it's more about my hate for the other party. So, you know, the other side of advertising is getting people to come out. So getting you to come out, and, and very often that is done via messaging that is almost designed to terrify you of, oh, the Republicans are going to win or the Democrats are going to win, so we got to get you to come out, you know, sort of playing the, the side of the game to, to, to juice turnout, to get your base to show up. And I think that's kind of a... You know, the two sides of this is, you know, persuading people in the middle versus getting your base to turn out. And I, I think when you even think about it that way, you think about just about any political campaign you see, you can start to see both of those things going on, right? Ads that are really designed to fire people up might be more designed to, you know, get the base to turn out versus, um, you know, ads that are, you know, maybe acting more on the on the margins to make an argument might be designed for persuasion. So let's talk about negative advertising. Do you think those are more effective or less effective than more positive ones? So one of the one of the long-term controversies in political advertising and one of the sort of tough empirical questions is the difference between negative and um, positive advertising. And so, and there's actually even some differences interpretation of what's negative and what's positive you know you can almost say let's say broadly there's almost two kinds of ads one is saying hey i'm mike lewis vote for me i'm going to do x i'm going to do y i'm going to do great things for you versus negative advertising where basically i come in and say you cannot vote for ada chong she's crazy i think she steals Ooh, that's pretty hurtful, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 you know what I mean. It, it's like so. Do I position myself as look? I'm going to be something good for the good for the government, or do I negatively attack you as someone that essentially you can't can't be trusted? And maybe that comes back to our earlier point about positive advertising might be more designed on the margins, you know, to get moderates to turn out. I want I want to sell them on Mike Lewis candidacy. Versus negative advertising of almost doing a fear appeal and saying, oh, you can't, you can't vote for Ada. Ada's scary, right? Scary, fear. I mean, these are kind of really kind of key aspects of this. And so there, there's always been this question, is negative advertising more, more effective? And, and, and let, me ask, let me ask you a question before I get to the answer or the partial answer to that. Okay. Do you like negative advertising? I actually don't. I don't think it's classy. Okay. Um, but that's me. When I see negative campaigns, when politicians attack someone else, I always think, why? Why is that necessary? Why can't you just talk about what you can give? Why do you have to talk about someone else and attack their character? Every survey will give you that same answer. 
you ask voters, voters hate negative advertising. They want to take the negativity out of it. And and I think you articulated kind of the, the key aspects to it. It's like, why do you have to be negative? Why do you have to tear people down? Why can't we talk on the positive? Why can't we talk about solutions? Now, that being said, there's some reason to think that negative advertising is going to be more effective. There, there's something in psychology, behavioral economics, called the negativity bias. The idea of the negativity bias is that we as human beings weight negative information more heavily than we do sort of equivalent positive information. Does it make sense to you? I think that's 100% true. <laughs> yeah. Intuitively, it makes sense. And, you know, where does the negativity bias come from? You'll see all sorts of explanations. Um, I tend to like the simpler explanations. And some one of the ideas I've seen out there is, look, it's when we're when we're sort of primates living on the savanna, of course we're going to weight negative information more heavily than positive information, right? Because, you know, you, you see a you see a snake, let, let's say, do you go up and pet the snake, right? You know, the, the negative consequences, the negative consequences can mean that I die. The positive consequences might mean I get a snake as a meal. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it seems like the repercussions are higher. Negative advertising. So if I put a negative signal out there about you versus, look, if, if I just come out and say, hey, I'm Mike Lewis, I'm great. Fine. Maybe I can convince a, a few people, right? If I go out there and say, Ada Chong is a frightening individual. You cannot put her in office. Well, one of those is going to trigger that kind of that kind of warning, right? So there, there's been a, it's an interesting thing. Negative advertising, people hate it. Every cycle, we tend to see more and more of it. And there's a theory and a little bit of data that suggests negative advertising is likely to be more effective. One of the things that's interesting about it is even the, when you look at what commentators say is negative advertising and what's not negative advertising, and, you know, an example popped into my head that's sort of going to be a tragic example when I'm talking to Ada's 28, so this is going to be sort of a terrible example. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the more famous ad campaigns in presidential contest was Ronald Reagan's Morning in America. Did you ever run into that in a class? No. Okay, so the idea of the Morning in America was this is sort of the um, Reagan's coming in, come, you know, taking over from Carter, and he's he's selling how the country has been improved. And it's essentially the idea of Morning in America. It's a fresh start. Things are getting better. It's something something brand new. There is now hope. Now, at first, you know, looking at that ad, my, my initial take, and I think most people's initial take would be to say, oh, this is something really designed to be inspirational. Now, I've heard other people claim that that's actually an incredibly negative advertising a advertisement because the focus is retrospective. By saying it's morning in America, it's actually an attack on the past party's efforts. So, what even constitutes negative advertising is often kind of a murky area. You know, it's one of those things where we kind of know it when we see it, but there might be a little bit of little bit of wiggle room in that. What about third-party advertising, for example, from super PACs? Okay, and so this has been a big one, a big controversy over the last couple of years. And so to, to keep things simple and maybe get a little bit of the details wrong, the way political donations, well, the way political advertising is funded is from donations. And so there tend to be relatively low limits in terms of what I can give a candidate or what you can give a candidate. Super PACs and political action committees, they, they change the rules 
so that contributions can be essentially unlimited. And so the, the issue with super PACs is this fear that free speech is going to be, well, it, it's a, it becomes a free speech issue on one side where, well, if people want to fund something, they should be able to talk. The other side of the equation is, well, if you only let people talk or have voices based on how much they can spend, then politics just becomes a game for billionaires. So if you were a billionaire, you create this super PAC to advocate the candidates and the positions you want. You can pour $100 million into it versus, you know, someone like us where maybe we can only give our local favorite candidate, you know, a, a couple of thousand dollars. So it's not a level playing field. In terms of who gets to have a voice, yeah. Now, the other thing with super PACs, though, is that they are separate from the candidates. Okay? And so, you know, when, when you think about the, the ads you've seen, some of the candidate ads will have a message at the end, like, I'm, uh, I'm Donald Trump and I approve this message, or I'm Hillary Clinton and I approve this message. Other ads will say, this message was paid for by the, and I'll just make something up here, by the Freedom Consortium or by the, uh, the, the Foundation for Truth in Politics. One of the other kind of interesting marketing questions here is, does the source of the ad matter? What do you think? I would say no. Okay, so if I'm putting my name on something as the candidate and saying, this is what I believe, versus, I don't know, and let's say, I forget the, the names I made up there, but let's say the Freedom Consortium. And the Freedom Consortium is bashing in, in, in our little election of Mike Lewis versus Ada Chong. The Freedom Consortium is just bashing Ada Chong. Does the Freedom Consortium have, and, and I apologize if there's a Freedom Consortium uh, super PAC, do, do they have credibility? Yes. Okay. <laughs> well, and the, the, but this is, this is why this is kind of an interesting empirical question, right? So... Again, not to, I didn't know we were going to talk about sort of bashing Ada Chong so much on this, but <laughs> negative advertising. So as the candidate, if I run a negative ad about you and say, this is Mike Lewis, I approve this message, um, versus, you know, the Freedom Foundation, so, you know, having the negative ad and saying that they paid for this, which of those ads has more credibility? The first one. The first one, why? Because people know the candidate who approved it. Okay. Versus some random group. Okay, and so this is this this is good. And so on on one level, you say, well, the first one where it's me because I'm putting my name on it. I'm putting my reputation, right? And reputation might be another word for brand. I'm putting the Donald Trump or the Hillary Clinton or the Mike Lewis brand on it. I'm risking something when I attack you. That could be part of it. I mean, so that that would put in the direction of maybe that ad should be more credibility, more credible. But potentially the problem with that is, or maybe the other side of that is, well, am I, dis am I a disinterested observer in this campaign? I would say no. no. I've got incredible self-interest, right? So would you, are you going to believe me when, if I defeat you in this campaign, I get all the riches that somehow come along with being a U.S. senator or a U.S. congressman, right? So the self-interest I have in this might suggest that, you know, I, I have less credibility. Now, for the super PACs, we've got sort of the opposite side of it, right? And I, I, did, I know I changed it from uh, the Freedom Consortium to the Freedom Foundation. I like the Freedom Foundation better now. <laughs> the Freedom Foundation, well, this, this is a good thing, right? It's yeah. About, it's about freedom. <laughs> <laughs> and, there's, and there's a foundation. I mean, I, you know, it sounds great, right? It's like 
they it sounds like a very legitimate organization or an almost like a neutral sounding organization, right? No. Well, how often do you think people research these groups after they see an ad and they're like, oh, who's the Freedom Foundation? Okay. And so I've got this neutral sounding or this positive sounding name. And so if maybe people aren't paying a lot of attention. That's, oh, that's good. This is a legit third party, sort of a disinterested advisor that's just trying to do the right um, observer that's just trying to, you know, get us the right candidate. Okay. On the other side of it, wait, who's the Freedom Foundation? Right. And so... You know, you got these kind of neutral, kind of nice sounding names, positive sounding names. But who are these people? Yeah. So, you know, how much credibility are they going to have? And, and you say, do, do people ever research um, who these groups are? I would guess. Well, let me ask you, have you ever researched one of them? No. Okay. I am not. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's probably the case too, right? It's like, so it probably essentially never. What we were doing in this um, paper is essentially kind of looking at both of those issues, is trying to, you know, using data from senatorial campaigns, is to look at what was more effective, negative advertising versus positive advertising, or you know, third-party advertising from super PACs versus candidate-based advertising. Tell me more about the paper. Where this became an interesting... Uh, paper in terms of well the I, I think the context is really interesting the other thing that was interesting about the paper and this is a you know for the the data analysts and the data scientists listening out there this is um, an increasingly important technique what we did in this paper well let me let me back up just a second so one of the problems in terms of studying political advertising effectiveness is this word endogeneity I'm guessing you don't hear the word endogeneity a lot in real life, do you? Nope. When something is endogenous is that one way you can look at it is that we're not talking about a controlled experiment. So in the case of politics, well, let's, let's go back to this last presidential uh, campaign and on like the Democratic side. So who were the candidates running for the Democratic nomination? Hillary Clinton and Bernie. And there were a couple other people, right? Do you remember who the other ones are? Those are the main ones that Okay. I remember. <laughs> well, but that's the point. Why don't you remember who the other couple were? I think it was like a governor of Maryland and some other guy. They just did not get as much media coverage. Okay, they got very little media coverage, and they didn't have any money to spend on advertising, right? Okay, so why didn't they have money to spend on advertising? Why would you give money to a guy that has no chance? Donations are endogenous in that people are going to tend to back who they think is going to win. So in the case of, you know, the Democratic side, oh boy, a lot of that money flew, you know, flowed to Hillary, right? It becomes like an apples to orange kind of comparison in terms of, let's say, well, this person, you know, spent all this money and they got a lot of the votes. Well, or did they get a lot of money to spend because they were going to get a lot of votes? Mm -hmm. So we've got to be kind of careful in terms of how we an analyze things. So it's not one of these easy things of, well, we just develop a statistical model to predict vote shares based on how much you, you spend. We got to be careful to control for this issue of endogeneity. And again, you know, it's a tough issue for a podcast, but I, you get the intuition and why this is a concern. Yeah. Okay. So what we did here was we used something called the border strategy, which goes back to the title of the paper. And the idea of the border strategy is 
it's something clever. And the idea is we're trying to figure out a way where we can sort of identify almost experimental conditions. And when I say experimental, essentially I'm trying to get rid of this issue of endogeneity. And so you think about, we've, we've all gone through, you know, high school science classes, right? And so we all know what an experiment is. It's like we're, we're being very precise and very controlled. So the idea in the border strategy is that we exploit something related to how cable, t cable TV works. Okay, so we are sitting here in Atlanta. Well, and, and you, were, you worked in media markets, right? Mm -hmm. When you work in a media market, do you guys think about, let's say, the, uh, the span of that market? Yeah, we um, do research on which demographics we want to target. But you also know when the border ends, right? Yeah. Okay. And so we're, we're sitting, sitting here in Atlanta, and city, you know, south of Atlanta is called Macon. Now, Atlanta is, you know, largely in Fulton County, and then it's surrounded by a bunch of other counties, and then you sort of bleed into Macon. And the way TV advertising works, the way it's sold, is based on, well, which of those markets am I targeting? which means we've got this break point between when we, when we look at the, the counties that are sort of between Atlanta and between Macon that end up lining up right next to each other. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Okay. And so if we make an assumption that those counties sort of in between those metropolitan areas tend to be very similar, they're probably pretty rural counties, right? Mm-hmm. They probably have, let's say they probably have a lot of in common between each other, these counties between those metro areas, than they do with the counties at the heart of those districts. Does that make sense? Yeah. So this is interesting. So we've got these two counties that are very similar that are exposed to different levels of advertising, right? Because some people are buying ads in, you know, they're buying ads in, um, in Atlanta or they're buying ads in, in Macon. So these two very similar counties where, let's say, there's sort of similar people in it are exposed to different levels of advertising. So we've got a quasi-experimental treatment. Why is this important to do? It's all a matter of, you know, let, let's say control. When we're analyzing stuff in the real world, and this is, um, this is going to be true whether we're talking about sports, whether we're talking about marketing, whether we're talking about politics, we got to control for the messiness of the real world. We got to control for the fact that when people are, you know, people are not just doing things for the analysts. They're not just varying the spending in a campaign to see what happens. They're not varying the strategy in a sporting event to see what happens. They are varying the strategy or varying the advertising in an effort to win the election or to win the game. So we need to be very careful in terms of controlling for essentially the direct actions of the, the agents playing the game. Let's talk about some lessons for the upcoming midterms. Okay, and, and so this goes, to, this goes to essentially what we found in, in the paper. What we found was some interesting stuff, especially given some of the, the controversies related to negative advertising and third-party advertising. We absolutely did find that negative advertising was more effective than positive advertising. So you hate it? I hate it. Got news for you, it works. I absolutely hate it. Or else, it, or I should say, at least it works a little bit better than the positive advertising. So basically, candidates 
need to do <laughs> negative advertising. And this has been the curse of American politics for, for really decades. And especially when things moved to TV and more visual media, we started to see more negative advertising. And I think we're going to see more of it. I mean, let me ask you this. And, and especially um, if we're talking about like lessons for the upcoming midterm, do you think we're going to see some a- negative advertising? Absolutely. <laughs> I think we're going to see more and more, right? It, it, with how intense this political climate is and how polarized it is, I think we're going to see more and more advertising related to, let's say, not trying to persuade the people in the middle, but trying to you know, get my base to show up because of how terrifying the other side is. Good news is I have DVR. I can fast forward okay. through all these commercials, huh? <laughs> that actually kind of makes um, is a, an interesting little side point in all this is this work was done using senatorial elections. I remember I said it was on cable TV-based systems. You know, one of the things that's going to be interesting in terms of how this world evolves is that as people become, you know, cord cutters or, you know, like I, I don't think my... My, my kids are never going to. My, my oldest is in college. He's never going to subscribe to cable TV. You know, my, my kids consume all their media on the phone. And so how is this going to, you know, how is this going to change some of these kind of, um, some of these kind of advertising strategies is, is an interesting one moving forward. The other key finding from the paper was that we actually found that, um, and I, I don't know how people are going to view this one. This one might actually be viewed as sort of a very a very positive for the electorate, is that third-party advertising tended to be much less effective, significantly less, less effective than advertising from the candidates. It's interesting. In a way, it kind of feels like a positive, right? So everyone everyone can have their voice. If you're a billionaire, you can do whatever you want. Well, you may well be wasting your money. That it seems to be that credibility of you know connecting me as the candidate to my message seems to really be the key thing so kind of key takeaways from the paper i mean i guess it's a little bit mixed right negative advertising people like you tend to hate it everyone seems to the vast majority of voters tend to hate it does seem to work Um, concerns about billionaires coming in there funding super PACs and buying elections that seems a little less um little less of an issue that that credibility or that connection to the the party or the candidate, the people with had some, let's say, skin in the games, a very current phrase, that tends to really matter. A lot of food for thought. Thanks for <laughs> weighing in, Mike. Okay. As always, you can go to influentialanalytics.com to learn more, and we appreciate you listening to us. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon.